Hello, and welcome back to World Studies here at Hilliard Bradley High School. Uh, today, for our second episode, we're looking at the Enlightenment, the period following the Scientific Revolution, still within our Unit 1. Um, again, good to have you here. Uh, glad uh, that you are listening. Uh, if for whatever any reason, uh, if you need more information, uh, again, we're going into some details here, but there's further details provided in our World Studies iBook. You can go to iBook 1, Section 3, in order to read, in order to dive a little bit deeper, in order to get some of your questions answered. And of course, if that's still not enough for you, again, please feel free to reach out to your World Studies teacher. Uh, for any questions, comments, or concerns. Let's go ahead and get started with the Enlightenment. So why are we learning this? Well, what we need to hit to today is Enlightenment ideas regarding human nature and society challenged religious authority and absolute rule. Again, that's what we're trying to get you to understand. Just like with the scientific revolution, what we see with the Enlightenment is it's an extension of that scientific revolution. Except with the scientific revolution, that focused on nature and the science around us, during the Enlightenment, philosophers are now focused on our perspectives and what we call natural law, which we'll define here later. What philosophers are looking for is trying to understand the way that people and human natural law, the way that people think, act, behave, and are motivated. And so with these Enlightenment ideas, If we can figure out people's motivations, why do they choose what they choose? How are these new ideas going to challenge the institutions, whether they are the church or the uh, absolute monarchy? Uh, How are these ideas going to be challenging um, those authoritative roles? What is the Enlightenment? Again, focusing on the Enlightenment in Europe, this is a period in the 1700s when philosophers believed that they could apply the scientific method and reason to explain human nature logically. There were three main goals of the Enlightenment. The first one was try to create a better society. With each of these ideas, how do we create a happier, how do we create a better society for many people? Um, Now, we're going to dive into that, unfortunately, again, These ideas, many of them coming from white Europeans, uh, are not directed toward a better society for all people. Um, But what we want to look at and what we'll examine here later is what is our modern interpretation of this. So uh, we will look at how the goal of the Enlightenment during this time is to create a better society. Number two, use reasoning to better understand life. How can we take what we understood from the scientific revolution and how we used experiments and observations and science um, to better understand the world around us? How can we use that same reasoning, that same rationalism to try to better understand um, our perspective of life as well? And then the third point that we're going to dive into today is also developing that relationship between people and government. This will change drastically the relationship um, between the people and their government uh, as we look at most European governments during this time period were monarchies, kings and queens. Um, So if we know anything about monarchies, we see very little relationship because who controls all the power? That's right. It's that one monarch. And so if that one monarch controls the power, how much voice or say do you have in that government? Very little. So does that monarch need a relationship with you? Not necessarily. 
So what guided the Enlightenment? Here are some two new terms that we'll go ahead and introduce into our vocabulary today. The first one is natural law. Um, these are objects in nature were expected to act in predictable ways. These actions were known as natural law. Uh, what philosophers saw natural law was, was that it was created by God who created the world and all living things, and all things had to act in accordance with the natural law of God. So again, what we're seeing here is we're seeing reason and rationality coexist with faith, um, an idea that we talked about uh, during the scientific revolution as well. Uh, the second term here is secularism. Uh, secularism is the belief that God and religion had nothing to do with events in nature, um, that they were set, um, and so therefore as natural law, um, these were prescribed, these were what you are born with. Um, also secularism will later influence ideas regarding separation of church and state, um, which we'll dive into uh, throughout the, this unit and the next unit. Diving into the philosophers, who are we going to be talking about today? Uh, who's kind of uh, propagating and uh, diving into uh, some of these new ideas? Um, we're going to look at Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Denis Diderot, Baron de Montesquieu, Voltaire, Mary Wollstonecraft, and Adam Smith. Um, all of these philosophers had um, extremely impactful insight into uh, the Enlightenment. Um, there was great debate that began about the nature and the purpose of government that all of these philosophers uh, jumped into, uh, and we continue to have those debates today. All right. Again, please feel free to stop or slow down any point this podcast if I'm going too fast. Uh, follow along with your guided notes. Um, and again, if you do have any questions, please reach out to your teacher. Let's go ahead and get started with the Enlightenment. As we get into the philosophers today, uh, just a quick reminder. Uh, this is going to just be a general overview for each. Uh, if you want to dive deeper into each philosopher, go ahead and crack open that iBook. Um, again, iBook 1, Section 3, for more information. The first philosopher that we're looking at today is a name of Thomas Hobbes. Uh, he was a British philosopher, uh, most famous for uh, his publication in 1651 of the Leviathan. Um, the main idea here that he's trying to put out is the belief that the first people lived in a state of nature that was dangerous, violent anarchy. Anarchy meaning um, that there was no government, um, there's no institutions to put into practice for social organization. Um, and so what he believed and why he's important, why these ideas of the Leviathan are important, um, is in order to avoid danger, people chose a leader to rule them. Um, he also believed that people are born evil. So when we talk about the state of nature, um, he believes that we're going to uh, act um, towards violence. We're going to act selfishly. We're going to act corruptly. Um, in order to shape that behavior, we need strong leadership. Well, as happens during this time period in Europe, uh, we see a lot of absolute monarchies. Uh, what that means, absolutism, is where we see unlimited centralized authority and total rule within a monarchy, um, usually set up as kings and queens. Um, and so it happens that 
Um, why this matters, uh, how does this challenge authority, moving on to level three and kind of big picture idea, um, is Hobbes isn't really trying to change the status quo. Uh, he supports this idea of absolutism. Um, he believes that uh, people um, need that strong leadership, need that absolute rule um, in order to shape good citizenship, in order to shape happiness. Um, so he's not challenging the current government structure. And this all falls within uh, what we call the social contract. Now, we all know that a contract is something that you sign, that somebody else signs. It's this agreement. Um, however, the social contract is a little bit different. Um, it's actually an unwritten agreement uh, between people and government over rights. Uh, this is something that as soon as you are born into any country, uh, so let's say you're born in the United States, uh, you automatically... Uh, fall into this social contract with your local, with your state, with your uh, federal government. Um, so you have to follow the laws um, right from the beginning. Um, and as you grow up, uh, continue to uh, follow those laws and have that relationship with your government. All right. Um, now, obviously, in a democracy now, uh, we have a different relationship with our government um, than with an absolute monarchy, uh, but we'll get into that when we cover revolutions, the next unit. All right. So with the social contract, why is this important? Well, people willingly give up the ruler or sorry, give the ruler absolute power, um, according to Thomas Hobbes, that that is something that people are willing. They give up all their rights um, and trust that their ruler are gonna, is, or their monarch is going to look out for their best interests. Um, and people are exchanging those individual liberties uh, for social order. Um, and why is the social contract important today? How does this challenge authority? As I mentioned, as we're going to start getting away from this monarchy, as we're going to actually see this idea create change, uh, the idea of the social contract will continue to challenge the relationship uh, between the government and their people. Another British philosopher here, John Locke. Hopefully this is a name that came up uh, last year. Um, we'll uh, go into that here shortly. Uh, he's most known in 1689 for his publication of the two treatises of government. Um, his main idea, if we had to put it into one sentence, uh, people gave up some rights and maintained their inalienable rights such as life, liberty, and the right to own property. Anybody hear that one before? Hopefully you learned that last year when you looked at the uh, Declaration of Independence. Uh, uh, one of our presidents, our third president, Thomas Jefferson, prior to becoming president, prior to the American Revolution, will actually reuse that phrase and plagiarize, some might say, uh, that he will change it, that every citizen will get life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All right. Again, he's going to be greatly inspired by John Locke. Uh, where John Locke is saying that uh, your rights that you get to keep, that the government cannot take away, is your life, your liberty, and the right to own property. All right. Uh, why is he important? Here, he's disagreeing with Hobbes on the idea of the social contract. Um, he does believe that you get some rights, uh, that the government should not be able to take those rights of life, liberty, and property. Um, so the purpose of the government is to protect those God-given rights. Um, so here, obviously, absolute rule will violate that contract. Uh, how does this challenge authority? 
well, if we're talking that we do see absolute rule throughout Europe during this time, um, we would say that any ruler or government that broke this contract violated natural law and could be removed. All right, again, John Locke believed um, that was it was okay to overthrow your government if they were violating uh, these rights. Okay, so again, the idea of the social contract here. John Locke is arguing for a little bit of a better relationship between people and their government, one that's not so one-sided towards the government, that people are willingly, they, sh they should give some of their rights to the government, but keep their life, liberty, and right to own property, all right? Again, the idea of the social contract continuing to challenge the relationship between government and its people because it's unwritten, it's this kind of fluid, it's this... Uh, malleable thing, flexible um, idea um, to change um, and develop uh, throughout time, uh, and depending on where you live. And then our third philosopher is actually from France, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, we're going to look at him. So he'll do his publication uh, approximately, um, let's see, uh, a little over a hundred years after Thomas Hobbes. He will legitimately just title his The Social Contract. Um, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau believes that people are naturally good, uh, but are later corrupted by environment, education, and government. And so it kind of dives into that um, sociological argument. Um, do you believe people are born good, or do you believe people are born bad? Um, and here Rousseau is disagreeing with Hobbes on that case. Again, Hobbes said that people were born inherently evil. Uh, Rousseau disagrees, but believes that society and the environment eventually corrupts them, um, and that people could preserve their natural state of goodness only if they are allowed to choose their own government. So here Rousseau is arguing for even greater um, relationship between uh, people and their government. Uh, he also disagreed with Locke, though, um, because what Rousseau said is that once you were able to choose your government, uh, it would be majority rule, so everyone had to follow the rule of law. Um, he makes several points uh, that if you don't follow the rule of law uh, that the majority of the people uh, agree with, uh, then the government has the right to take away um, those liberties um, and make sure that you are following uh, what everybody else wants. All right. Uh, but he does disagree with absolutism and a strong central government. Again, he's arguing here for representative government. Um, so again, challenging that relationship uh, between that absolute monarchy and the people. Um, here, just to summarize, um, the social contract, again, this unwritten agreement between people and government over rights. According to Rousseau, people willingly gave all rights to the chosen government. Um, and needed representation to change the laws. So again, overthrowing uh, would be unacceptable in most cases. Okay. Um, now, on a side note, um, each of these writers are only writing that natural law applied to well-reasoned people. Again, who do you think is the main target audience for all of these public uh, publications? Yeah, we're talking about the people who can read, right? Again, if we're doing these publications and we're talking about lower literacy rates here in the 17th and 18th centuries, what type of people can read here in Europe? Well, it's going to be the white, upper-class educated men. Now, 
what we look at with these philosophers is that they're not acknowledging the rights of women, they're not acknowledging the rights of slaves, people of color, members of the queer community. And so this is something that we have to grapple with. Um, as we look at these ideas, um, yes, these ideas are attempting to challenge the status quo of government, but they're only going so far during the time period. They're only trying to change the status quo for a small group of people. Now, what we look at today is we have molded these ideas and adapted it to fit modern issues. So when we talk about uh, John Locke and life, liberty, uh, and the right to own property, what we are now looking at and continuing to grapple with today um, is how do we include uh, the rights of women in there? How do we include uh, the rights of the queer community of people of color? Um, so it's interesting how these, each of these ideas continue um, to change over time uh, much farther than what these original uh, philosophers intended. All right, so that'll wrap up our discussion here um, on the social contract. Um, we'll go ahead and take a break uh, before we move on to the rest of our philosophers. All right, let's go ahead and take some time to look at the rest of our philosophers here during the Enlightenment period. Uh, this next French philosopher, Denis Diderot, um, is most notably um, renowned for uh, editing the first encyclopedia, which is a collection of articles dealing with every subject. Um, again, uh, today we don't use encyclopedias much just because uh, we have the internet at our fingertips. Um, but here we see many articles attacking the church, government, slave trade, torture, taxes, and war. Again, challenging the institutions, challenging um, the system uh, that was in place. Um, he published the first version in 28 volumes um, over a 20-year period, 1751 to 1772, um, and was also imprisoned for his views by the French monarchy. Um, so believing and in getting information out there um, in the best way that he knew possible, um, even though um, it did involve sacrifice for himself. Okay. Uh, moving on to new ideas here um, and political criticism. Um, our first philosopher here on this slide uh, is Baron de Montesquieu. Um, I'll usually shorten that up into Montesquieu. Um, his publication in 1748 of The Spirit of the Laws um, tried to identify the perfect form of government. Um, what he believed to be the perfect form of government uh, was what Great Britain um, had set up as a constitutional monarchy. Um, so with a constitutional monarchy, um, we do see three branches, just like what we see in the United States what we, and what we see in the separation of powers. Um, however, because we still see that monarchy, rather than having the executive branch form of a elected president, um, we see the executive branch being head by um, the monarchy, by the king or queen based on bloodline. Um, so that was still set up, um, but it's kind of that transition um, as we go from um, absolute monarchy to constitutional monarchy to um, representative uh, constitutional democracy. Um, so with that separation of powers, Montesquieu believed this would be able to provide checks and balances. Um, it would uh, prevent um, corruption. Um, and as I mentioned, it will inspire our own American constitution 
Uh, if you look at Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution, Article 1 is exactly how the legislative branch should be set up, Article 2, executive branch, and Article 3, the judicial branch, and how the courts should be set up. So why does this matter today? How is this challenging authority? Well, if we look at the absolute monarchy during the time period, Montesquieu is critiquing it that it's unacceptable, that uh, one person having absolute or total power Um, just should not be um, a form of government. It's not what's best for uh, people. Um, He believed that monarchs should give up power and set up systems to share power to alleviate corruption. Uh, The next critique comes from the French philosopher Voltaire. Um, He was big on the idea of freedom of speech and religion. Uh, He championed uh, religious freedom and freedom of thought. Um, He was critical of intolerance and suppression of his personal freedom. Um, Modern debate uh, suggests that Voltaire may have been atheist, but because it was completely illegal to be atheist, um, he actually developed um, and practiced the doctrine of deism, uh, which is a form of Christianity. Uh, But what deists believe is this idea that God created the universe, but once the universe was created, God then took a step back to allow human nature, to allow human choice. Um, And so there's not the meddling, there's not the spirit um, that's out there. And that's what um, Voltaire uh, publicly declared. Um, But again, looking at his writings, many scholars today um, have suggested um, that he may have been an atheist, um, just did not feel comfortable and did not want to um, sacrifice um, his life because that was an extreme um, viewpoint during that time. Uh, Here, hopefully, as you guys looked at last year in U.S. history in eighth grade, uh, this will be uh, inspiring part of our Bill of Rights. Again, our First Amendment does provide that freedom, speech, uh, religion, and the press. Um, So here, Voltaire is attacking the French monarchy over and over, uh, the privileges of the nobility of that upper class, as well as the relationship uh, with the Catholic Church, certainly. All right, moving on to um, a new phase here, uh, development of women's rights. Um, One of our first writers here in 1792, writing a vindication of the rights of women, uh, was a lady named Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, Within this uh, publication, she advocated for equality of all, regardless of gender. Uh, She fought for education and work opportunities. Um, Her argument... Uh, was that women could reason and use their rational senses just as well as men, but because they didn't have the uh, same education, because they didn't have the equal work opportunities as men, um, that's where you could see the disparities uh, between the genders. Uh, She ridiculed the notion that women were helpless and merely adornments to the household, Um, again, trying to get women in power. Uh, Why is this important today? How does this challenge authority? Uh, Well, this is challenging the patriarchy, uh, which is a system of society or government in which men hold the power. Um, And so what she's doing um, is even she attacks the philosophers that we just talked about. Um, She'll write to Rousseau and say, hey, I'm with you all the way up until you're only talking about white educated men, um, as well as... um, She'll attack John Locke as well. Um, And so challenging this patriarchy, she's going to set and be credited 
with beginning the modern phase um, of the feminist movement, uh, which we're going to continue to talk about uh, throughout this entire semester and entire year. Um, I've also provided another podcast. um, If you want to know more about Mary Wollstonecraft, Um, the podcast is called The History Chicks. It's two women um, that dive into the history of uh, many significant uh, women leaders of change. Um, And so if that's something you're interested, you can go ahead and click on that link for more info. Now, as we've been talking about new ideas in political rights and social rights, um, here, let's go ahead and move on. What are some new ideas when it comes to economics, business, and money? Well, we see the philosopher Adam Smith with his publication in 1776, known as The Wealth of Nations. The main idea that he comes up with is this idea of laissez-faire, which is a French word meaning hands-off. And so how he's applying this hands-off, laissez-faire uh, term to economics is he believes the government should not interfere with the free markets. Again, when we look at an absolute government um, and monarchy, how were economies shifted um, and how did they work? Well, they were set up with mercantilism. Again, hopefully a term that you learned in seventh grade world history. But with mercantilism, this was an economic practice that promoted governmental regulation of a nation's economy. Um, And so what he's arguing is he wants to get away from this idea of mercantilism. He wants to get away from absolute control of the economy and set up this laissez-faire where there's less interference by the government. Uh, This kind of sets up our modern notion of what capitalism is. Um, We can see capitalism uh, be um, fully adopted, uh, especially early on uh, within uh, the United States. Um, And we would still argue uh, that we live within that capitalist society today. That wraps up all of our philosophers for today. Um, So let's go ahead uh, and conclude uh, with today's enlightenment lesson. As we wrap up, let's go ahead and look at why does this matter? Why in the world are we studying this? Uh, How can this connect to uh, your life here today? Well, again, we looked at the three goals of the Enlightenment, right? One, to create a better society. Two, to use reasoning to better understand life. And three, to develop that relationship between people and government. Today, right, when we look at policies, when we talk about electing people, Um, When we talk about creating change or um, changing the rules of um, either your household or your school or your community, right? The whole idea of trying to create that change is trying to create a better society. So we continue to live within a world where we attempt to create a better society. Now that looks different for many people. um, And so it's important that we're listening to all those perspectives. Um, in order to create that better society that will uh, benefit um, every single person. Uh, Number two, we continue to use reasoning to better understand life. Um, It's important uh, to have facts. It's important to uh, use research in order to uh, back up uh, your beliefs, your arguments, your policies. Um, And so that's something that we continue to do um, here today. And then, of course, developing the relationship between people and your government. 
Um, and this all stems from the idea of that social contract. Again, that unwritten agreement between a people and their government. Um, this continues to this day in every single country and every single state um, and even in counties. I mean, if we look at what is our relationship with government, what rights are we willing to give up for social organization? Um, all of these questions um, are being asked today, uh, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement um, or even the right uh, for the government uh, to uh, mandate you to wear a mask during the pandemic. Um, all of these ideas we're trying to grapple with, again, what rights does the government have or which rights are we willing to give up to the government in order to create a better society uh, for all. And then also, again, that last point there, uh, we did talk about the development um, and the um, molding of all of these Enlightenment ideas and how they've changed over time to present day. Uh, so a big question we should ask is who should be included when we talk about rights and equality? Um, again, the initial intention for many of these philosophers were only focused on a small uh, group of people um, and not inclusive. Um, but now, as we continue to talk about this um, today, uh, we want to make sure that when we talk about these rights, that we are being inclusive. Uh, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of um, ethnicity or any other uh, things that we see as different um, from us. All right. So that'll conclude our lesson on enlightenment. Again, I appreciate your time and so glad you're able to um, sit down and listen here with me today. Um, again, if you have any questions at all, please reach out to your teacher. Your teacher would be more than willing to uh, help you and assist you. Um, and we'll get back at it here uh, soon uh, as we look at uh, the enlightenment further. Thank you again.